0: Listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Good morning, Kelowna. It is uh, it's a great privilege to be with you here this morning. Uh, our text today is Matthew six nineteen to twenty one. So if you could turn with me there, that would be fantastic. Hopefully you brought the Word of God with you. I always find Um, sermons are pretty meaningless unless I've got the Word of God in front of me. The words that I say are dim in compare to the Bible that we hold in our hands. It's such a great privilege uh, for us to have the Bible in our language. Many, many, many people groups in this world do not have this privilege. Not only do we have the Bible in our language, but we've got hundreds of translations apparently. And so uh, I want to make sure that You're bringing the Bible with you week in and week out. Uh, It's a great uh, privilege to serve your senior pastor. I've got to know Meldon uh, quite well over the last year and a half, and I'm so thankful for him. I work with a number of different senior pastors, and they each have their own different personalities and their own hearts. And I have very much valued Meldon's heart for Kelowna. Very few pastors in this country have a heart for their community like your pastor has for his. Not only for the lost, but those that are in other churches. Uh, He constantly talks about and prays for those that are attending other churches, and that's such a rarity in today's world. Uh, He loves you, uh, he loves his family, and it's been really great to get to know him. Our our text this morning is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, These are the three chapters between Matthew 5 and Matthew 7 that Jesus is giving this discourse on a mountain. Uh, A funny story about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I was recently uh, writing something on the Sermon on the Mount for some friends in Mongolia, and I had a translator working with me on this. And so in my notes that she was translating, I said, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And I got an email the next day, and she said, can you explain to me what you mean by Sermon on the Mount? Isn't Mount a horse? And so it's the Sermon on the Mountain we abbreviate it to be the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's one of my favorite preachers of all time, said this. He wrote, The world today is looking for and desperately needs true Christians. Never tired of saying that the church needs to, what the church needs to do is not to organize evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin herself to live the Christian life. If she did that, men and women would be crowding into our buildings. They would say, what is the secret of this? He introduced the Sermon on the Mount to his church as nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called his new commandment. His new commandment was that we love one another even as he loved us. And the Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a grand elaboration of that. If we are Christ's, If we are Christ's, and our Lord has meant that word for us, that we should love one another even as he loved us, here we are shown how to do that. So here in the midst of Jesus' great address, we find our text. Starting in verse 19 of chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, it is such a privilege to uh, be here today, God, with your word open in front of us. God, it's such a privilege to be with brothers and sisters, uh, that are across this country from where I live, and and to feel an instant bond and unity. And God, we know that's only through your spirit. I thank you for that. Lord, as we sang today, I couldn't help but think of the hymn, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God, as we look at your word today, as we explore the gospel God, and what impact it has on our material lives, Lord, I pray that in light of your beauty and your glory and your majesty that the idols of our heart would be exposed and, God, that you would make them grow strangely dim. Only you can do that in this place today, God. We pray that with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you go into chapters or a... Shoppers Drug Mart, and you walk into the magazine section, one of the things that you'll notice is that there are a lot of magazines about money. Now we have uh, digital subscriptions on our iPads and iPhones to these magazines, and they're available in the hundreds. Some of them use headlines like How to Live Like the 1% or Retire in Luxury or Get Rich Quick. People buy these magazines hoping that there are snippets of advice in there that will fulfill their wildest dreams. Uh, up behind me is one of the most popular issues every year of Money Sense magazine. These sell in great masses because people want to know how to invest their money. Why do we care so much about money? We want more and more. And more, and those that have more want more. And those that are living in the 99%, really, they wish they were in the 1%, and that's why they're angry at them. That's the true heart condition. Why do we care so much about money? Warren Buffett is called the Oracle of Omaha. If you know anything about this man, uh, he has built his life around making good monetary investments. His company, Berkshire Hathaway, has an annual meeting every year that's kind of like this woodstock of of money investors. And people flock by the tens of thousands to to Omaha, Nebraska, of all places. And they fill out arenas. And they had a 25-page guide to the annual meeting this year. People wanting to know how to invest their money. People read his letters religiously. People care a lot about money. And if we're true to ourselves this morning, for some reason, our hearts care a lot about money as well. Here in Matthew 6, Jesus is speaking about an investment far, far greater than what we've got here on earth. He's got two steps for us on how to invest, but he's not talking to us about how to invest materially here on this earth. He's talking to us about how do we invest eternally into the things that truly matter. Let's look at the text again. The first step, you're going to want to write this down, don't lay up treasures on earth. Simple. Don't do it. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Why? Because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Sounds like common sense, doesn't it? People, myself included, we get our investment portfolio things from the bank and we open them up and we look, what did I make this month? Or what did I make? Some people do it every day, looking at their phones. Like are my investments going up or are they going down. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter because thieves can break in and steal, Ross could destroy Russ could destroy. And in today's world, some corrupt CEO could have an ethical dilemma, and your whole company that you've invested in is worthless. It's meaningless, and you have no control over it. Step number one, do not invest in things of this earth. Step number two, lay up treasures in heaven. Thieves cannot come in and break in and steal the things that you lay up for yourselves eternally in heaven. What does this mean, though? There's not some special bank account that takes our money and sucks it right up into heaven and it's going to be waiting for us with some great monetary reward. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's what I want to talk about this morning is what does this mean to lay up your treasure in heaven? Why is it so important? Well, verse 21 tells us why it's so important. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Jesus said in verse 24 a little bit later on that our hearts cannot serve both God and money. It's either one or the other. And the things that I'm sharing with you this morning, you need to hear this, church. There are some lessons that I'm sharing with you this morning that hurt very, very deeply to me personally over the last five years as God was just revealing himself in these truths to me. So I'm not standing up here as someone who has got it all figured out. Every single morning, I'm looking in the mirror, searching for God's grace on how to live this out. What does it mean to be a steward? What does it mean to invest in eternity? How do I lay up treasures in heaven? These are the things that we need to wrestle with because God said it. God said it. Lay your treasures up in heaven. Don't lay them up on earth. His words are infinitely more wise They're infinitely better than anything some rich old man in Omaha, Nebraska can tell you. So today what we're going to do is we're going to examine two parables. The first one, if you can turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verse 11. It's the first parable that we're going to look at. The first step to investing in eternity is through stewarding God's gospel. The first step... In investing in eternity is through stewarding God's gospel if we don't get this point if we don't get this point the rest is meaningless so turn with me again to Luke chapter 19 starts off in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained for him by doing business. So the first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow." so he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And as he said to those who stood by, take the minas from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. And they said, And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is a parable. And a a parable is a simple story used to illustrate a spiritual truth. The things in this story did not actually happen. Jesus is using an illustration to really make simple a spiritual truth. So the passage tells us that Jesus is walking with the disciples and with some other people towards Jerusalem. We know that he was on his way to Jerusalem to die. But the people who were following him at that moment thought, this is it. The kingdom is coming immediately, imminently, it's coming, and Jesus is going to be the military victor that helps us overthrow the Romans. That's what they thought when they were going to Jerusalem. And what Jesus is telling them is something that's going to change the course of their lives and lay the foundation for the church for the next few thousand years, and they have no clue. See, Jesus did not go to Jerusalem Jerusalem, to cause a political and military overthrow of the government. It didn't happen that way. He allowed himself to be arrested and tried and executed and killed. Disciples fled. This was not what they had imagined. See, these men had followed Jesus around for three years and they thought that they were in line for some military captaincy or they would have some political rank with him here on earth. That's not what Jesus had planned. See, the nobleman in this parable represents Jesus. He represents Jesus. After Jesus died, 3 days later he was risen from the grave and he walked with his disciples for 40 days and then ascended to his throne beside his father. In this parable, the nobleman he's going off to a far place to collect his kingdom. See when when Jesus came and he died and he rose again, he ushered in his kingdom. Theologians call it this already and not yet. See, Jesus' kingdom is already here. He has conquered sin in the grave. But there's this not yet that exists. The not yet is why we turned our TV on Friday and we saw chaotic scenes from France. The, the not yet is why we struggle with sin day after day after day. It's why, why we walk downtown Kelowna and we see people living in extreme poverty and hopelessness. It's when we see our neighbor living next door to us, constantly buying new cars, and it never satisfying them. There's this not yet to the kingdom. But just as the nobleman returned as king in this parable, Jesus, who sits on his throne now, will usher in his kingdom in its fullness when he returns. He is coming as conquering king. When he came to earth 2,000 years ago, it was as a suffering servant. When he returns, make no mistake about it. He is coming as conquering king. In this parable, he gives these servants Amina. What is Amina? That's a good question. Well, Amina was a sum of money equal to about three months of earnings for a laborer. Three months of earnings. You might want to write that down. things are important. It's a lot of money. You take what you earn in three months and... That's, that's the type of sum that Jesus was talking about there, relatively speaking. And he lines up ten servants and he gives each of them a mina. Ten servants, one mina each. And then he departs. He, he asks them to make an investment and to do business with his, with his investment in them. And then we see these citizens. Who are these citizens that send after him saying, we do not want you to reign after us? Well, just as Jesus is on his throne today and this world is full of people who are living in rebellion and hatred towards him, they would not claim that Jesus is Lord. They do not want his authority over them. He is their king, but they are living in rebellion. That's these citizens here in the parable. Some of us in this room may identify most with these citizens. Maybe someone brought you here today and you're hearing these words that I'm speaking and, and there's this rebellion that's creeping up inside of you. You want to be your own boss. You don't want anybody to tell you what to do. Especially Jesus. That's who these citizens are. So this king returns and he calls, he calls his servants back to him. And he says, show me what you've got. Show me what you have done for me. So let's take a look at the first servant. He says, what did you do with my mina? And, and the servant responds, Master, your your mina has made 10 minas more. Notice the humility in that. Notice the humility in that. He gives credit to the master. He doesn't say, I made 10 minas with your mina. He said, your mina made 10 minas more. He calls the second servant to him and he said, well, what did you do with my investment? And this servant says, your mina has made five minas more. Again, humility in the answer. Five minas. And then he calls the third servant. To me, this is the scariest guy in the whole parable. This is the, this is the person that I'm afraid of when I read this parable and apply it to everyday life. See, this servant was servant in name only. He couldn't even identify his king's traits. He didn't know his character. He stands in front of his king and he falsely accuses him of being someone he wasn't. He says, well, the reason I didn't invest your mina and I put it in a handkerchief is because I'm afraid of you. You steal from people. You you take what isn't yours to own. Brothers and sisters, there are people in the church today across this world who say that they are servants, but they do not know who Jesus is. They are Christian in name only. And there is a coming, a day where they stand in front of their king and they will say in their hearts things about Jesus that were not true. That to me is one of the most heartbreaking things in all of this parable. There are people who identify themselves as followers of Jesus and have no idea who Jesus is. So, what does this mean? What does the mina represent? It represents the gospel. See, the nobleman brought his servants in front of him and he said to them, here's one mina each. We are each in the church given the gospel. You hear it proclaimed from this pulpit every single week. You open the word of God and it is in front of you. So I want to take some time this morning because again, this is coming from my own spiritual walk. We can't even start talking about how to invest materially in the kingdom of God until we talk about how we're going to invest the gospel. How are we going to steward the gospel? The same way that you want to know what's in your portfolio, the same way you want to know the value of a dollar, I kind of want to talk about this morning what What the gospel is. Let's review it together. We can never get sick of this. There's five threads of the gospel that we're going to talk about this morning. And I came across this uh, several years ago as a way to explain the gospel and weave it into everyday life. And I want to share it with you this morning. It's been very practical for me to remember what the gospel is. So I'm going to introduce you to a thread and then we're going to review it. And then at the end of the sermon today, we're going to Bring them back into the conversation, okay? First thread, the character of God. The character of God. It's where we start with God is our creator. Because he created us, we belong to him. You have breath in your lungs because God gave you lungs. Okay? He created you. In his image, he created you. He's perfect. God is perfect. There is not one ounce of wrongness in God. He can do no wrong. He's perfect. Otherwise, he could not be God. He's holy. We sang that this morning Holy, holy. Jesus, you are. God, you are. Holy. He's set apart from everything. He's perfect. And because He created us, there's this accountability. We're accountable to God. I have three little children. And the moment they were born, there was this instant accountability toward me. Sometimes my son, in his rebellion, will look at me and say, why do I have to listen to you? Who are you? He's five. And the words that always come out of my mouth are son, I made you, I'm your dad, you belong to me. And that is a spiritual truth as well. God created you, you are his son, you are his daughter, you are his creation, you belong to God. There's this accountability, that's the first thread. Holy, awesome character of God. And our second thread that we're gonna weave into this is is the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And it just took just took a while in the garden for Adam and Eve to lose the plot. See, the Bible says that we are morally evil. Genesis 8.21 says the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil from his youth. From the moment a baby can make a sound and show rebellion, we see that intention of the heart coming out through them. We're morally evil. We are spiritually sick and we're slaves to sin. Spiritually sick and slaves to sin. Think think, Think about that with me. When we see sin around us and in us, it does create this gut reflex. This, oh, that's horrible. That's awful. We're spiritually sick and we're slaves to sin. There's this bondage, this bondage, this slavery to sin. We can't work our way out of it. We're constantly enslaved to sin. We're blinded by the truth. We're blind. We're walking around as slaves to sin, spiritually blind people apart from Christ. Dead in our trespasses and sins, the Bible says. I love the word dead. It's pretty clear, isn't it? We talk in very drastic terms. You're either alive or you're dead. Our cell phones are either alive or they're dead. We don't walk around with little battery meters over us saying 75% alive. We're either alive or we're dead. Our doctors don't say, well, you're 87% alive today, but that battery, it's slipping. No, you're alive. Be thankful you're alive. Well, we were spiritually dead. Apart from Christ and faith in him, you are spiritually dead. That's the second, second thread, the sinfulness of man. Now let's talk about the third thread, the sufficiency of Christ. God sent his son to reconcile himself to us. There was this separation that was created with the original sin in in Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and it has translated itself, it was accounted, we inherited the sinful nature and God in his infinite wisdom chose to write the story so that he paid the sacrifice through the life of his son. Jesus' life displayed the righteousness of God. As I talked through how we're spiritually sick and slaves to sin, Jesus came to earth, was born to sinful parents, lived a perfect life, died a death that we could not die, rose from the grave to conquer death. He lived a life we couldn't live. Do you ever stop at Christmas time and just think about that? I, I, I think we talk a lot about um, baby Jesus, and, and the incarnation of Christ. But we don't often talk about the 33 years that Christ lived a perfect life. We've got kids in here with us today. Raise your head, hands if you're in here as a, as a child. I know you're in here. Yeah, you're paying attention. Good, good. Think about the last time that you guys refused to share something. Think about it. Do you know that Jesus was a, a kid? He never disobeyed his mom and dad ever. Every time Mary said, "Jesus, share with your brothers." Perfect. Perfect obedience. "Jesus, come home. It's dinner time." Perfect obedience. And not only that, but Jesus had sinful parents. As a father, my sin plays out constantly in my house. My kids and my wife, they interact with my sinfulness. Jesus was in a sinful household, and yet he remained absolutely and 100% perfect. He committed no sin. There's sins of commission, and then there's sins of omission. Omission. These are when we should have done something and we didn't do it. Jesus never sinned by omitting an action. He always did the right thing. Think about that. Seems like I can't even take a breath or a thought without having sin creep into my life. Jesus lived the perfect life and then he died the death that fully satisfied the wrath of God for us. That's the sufficiency of Christ. Now let's talk about faith. This is our fourth thread, the necessity of faith. So Christ now is the basis of our salvation. We are saved because of Jesus Christ. And faith is the means of our salvation. Christ is the basis, basis, but faith is the means. By initial faith in Christ, we were made right before God the Father. We experienced a new birth described in John 3. God opened our eyes and he changed our heart. We were blind. God opened our eyes. He changed our hearts. He cleanses us and indwells us. By his grace, we turn from our sin. By continual faith in Christ, we now walk with God as a friend. That unity that existed in the Garden of Eden was restored through the life and death of Jesus Christ and by us putting our faith in him. See, that's, that's a pretty great reward, but it doesn't just stop there. If we look at this parable This master, he's giving these two faithful servants in here, the one that made 10 minas and the one that had earned five minas, and he gave them this extravagant reward. To the one who had earned 10 minas, he gave authority over 10 cities. And to the one who had earned five minas, he had given authority over five. But then there's this picture of these rebellious citizens that are brought before the master. And he says, For these enemies of mine who did not want to reign, me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Slaughter them before me. It's over. That brings us to our fifth thread of the gospel. There's this urgency of eternity that weighs on us, this urgency of eternity. Brothers and sisters, scripture's very, very clear on this. There is coming a day when every person will be judged. Faithful servants, false servants, rebellious citizens, they will all be judged. And we have the responsibility of stewarding the mina that was given to us, the gospel. How are you stewarding the gospel in your life? Well, that leads us to our Second point today, I want to look at what we would call key performance indicators. Key performance indicators. If some of you are familiar with business, these are things that you can look at and you can identify and sometimes you check them off and sometimes you X them out, but they they tell you how a business is doing. And today it's going to show us how our eternal stewardship is going, how our investment in eternity is going. Let's turn to Matthew 25, verse 14. That's our second parable that we're going to look at this morning. I'm not going to read through it all. There's quite a lot of similarities between the parable of the minas and the parable of the talents. Some of you might be even thinking, didn't we just go over this parable? Isn't it the same thing? Very similar, but there's a few differences I want to highlight. We know it's different because Jesus was actually walking towards Jericho when he gave this parable. It wasn't the same geographical location. That was our first hint. Second, if you look at this this parable, the master gives a varying amount of talents, not meanest, talents to his servants. A talent was equal to 20 years of wages. That's a lot of money. And he told them to invest it. But they're given, one's given 10 and one's given 5. And one's given 2. And so we know that this isn't necessarily talking about the gospel. Because we're all given equal amounts of the gospel. I don't have more gospel than you do. The gospel is the gospel. But we each have very different gifts and talents. We have different treasure. Okay, God has chosen in his infinite wisdom and his righteous wisdom to give us varying degrees of gifts and treasures. So our three key performance indicators, KPIs that we're going to talk about this morning. The first is talents, gifts. How are you using the gifts that God has given to you? Some of you are really gifted musically, but maybe hiding in the back of the theater because you would never want Shayon to know that you can play an instrument. You just don't want to deal with having to go to practice on a Wednesday evening. Some of you are blessed with the gift of hospitality, but your neighbors wouldn't even know it. Do they know it? When their life is in crisis, do they know to knock on your door because you're the person that is the most hospitable person that they know? What about in the community? What are some ways that you can use your gifts in the community to advance the kingdom of God? So we're not only talking about how we use our talents and our gifts within the local church. The reason we use our talents and gifts in the local church is so that we can impact the further community in this globe for the kingdom of God. You know how you're gifted. If you really think about it, how are you stewarding those gifts and those talents you're gonna have to give an account for it I'm gonna have to give an account for it I really like numbers if I chose to sit in my in my attic every day and paint beautiful pictures which would not be beautiful because it's not my gifting I would be wasting away something that God has gifted me in how are you using your gifts and your talents for the kingdom of God That's our talents. What about your time? What about your time? One of the things that God has really used uh, in the last five years of my life is uh, just a massive heart for missions. And as I identify with fellow brothers and sisters about missions, one of the biggest excuses that they have for never going to a mission field is, well, God's got me called here. There's some that are called to go, and there's some. My mission field is Kelowna. Kelowna is my mission field. What does your daytimer look like? Are you taking captive every single breath that God has given you in your body? Every moment that you and I are alive is a gift. It's a gift. Are, you, are, are we using it? Are we using it? Some people take a week out of their lives and take a vacation week and, and work within their local community. Maybe that's an idea for you. But are you using your time? There's there's this form outside, this orange form. Sign up for heart resurgence in small groups. I've been a small group leader for seven years. You know what the biggest excuse for not joining a small group is? I'm too busy. I'm too busy. And as Harvest Kelowna starts with small groups, some of you will be small group leaders and some of you will be small group members. And without a doubt, the thought will creep into your mind, I am just too busy. I'm not going to go to heart resurgence. I'm too busy. Sometimes you don't come to church on Sunday maybe because you're too busy. Maybe the Lord is impressing on you to come to Pastor Meldon's house tonight and explore stewardship further, but you're too busy. The purpose of small groups in the church is not so that we can sit together in a house and have really good desserts together. The purpose of small groups is that we can sit in a house together and spur each other on as we live on mission for God. It's not so that we become little Bible collective clubs that nobody's allowed into. It's so that our neighbors and our communities and our church at large see how we operate and are drawn like moth to a flame. Small groups in Kelowna, you're to be a light in this community. You're to be... Active members, a larger member, different gifts within a small group. So I I plead with you, I urge you, join a small group. You are not too busy. We've seen in the Bible today, there is way too much, way too much at stake for us to be too busy. We have no problem watching hockey at night, but man, you get us into a room for two and a half hours to talk about the Bible and sin, too busy, too busy. Third. We talked about our talents, we talked about our time, and I want to talk about our treasure. So what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Do you know that the Bible talks about money in 2,300 verses? More, more about money than heaven or hell. More about money than any other subject. Why? Because there's this weird sensation that goes in our hearts when money is discussed. Meldon might have been introducing me this morning and you heard Ryan's the director of finance and you thought, oh great, he's going to talk about money. Leave my money alone. It's mine. It's mine. Just like this parable of the talents in Matthew 25, God has graciously given each of us in different measures our money. How are we investing it? Are we spending it on frivolous things or are we investing it in the kingdom of God? And it's really interesting how money ties directly, directly into the gospel. See, let's circle back to those five threads of the gospel that I shared with you earlier. And I'm going to show you how intricately money, which is our greatest idol in our lives, or material things that money buys, they're, they're interconnected because God on his rightful throne wants control of your material possessions. He's given them to you, and he wants you to steward them well for his kingdom and his glory. So when it comes to money, the character of God, God owns and distributes everything. The person who has nothing, God has sovereignly decided that they should have nothing or a little. Some who have a lot, God has sovereignly, and righteously decided that they have a lot. We're not God. We don't get to be upset that our neighbor earns more than we do, or the person on that lakefront property has a nicer house than we do. God, in his infinite wisdom, decided to bless them with that. But there's this accountability. Just as we're accountable to God with our lives, we're also accountable to him with our money. In Matthew 25, there is a, Reckoning, There is a rewarding that goes on. We will have eternal rewards in heaven and they are directly tied to how we steward the gospel and how we steward the gifts that God gives us. Some, some commentators talk about it as being cities that we are given to be over. My favorite uh, illustration is by uh, Jonathan Edwards and he talked about how our reward was Basically a vessel that we would be able to dip into the happiness of God and drink from. I can get my head around that more than I can get my head around having some jewels and a crown that I wear around for all of eternity. I would like that. Don't get me wrong. But there's going to be no greater reward than being able to soak in the glory and beauty of our Savior. And so Edwards talked about how some of us will be given a vessel the size of a a, a thimble to dip into the ocean of God's glory and drink from. But because we're in heaven and there will be no more sin, we will be perfectly happy and enjoying that thimble worth of God's glory. Some of us will be given a barrel type vessel that we can get our arms around to just drink back the glory of God. That is a great reward for us to be able to spend all of eternity and enjoy the glory of God forever and ever and ever. We will be able to see the new creation in ways that we were never able to experience the old creation. Your city is way more beautiful than my city. I live in a concrete jungle and it's very ugly and smelly and ugh. Okay, I don't live in Toronto because it's beautiful. Okay, you live in Kelowna, many of you, because it's beautiful. This doesn't have anything on glory. Trees will never die. Flowers will never fade. We will never get old. We will see with perfect sight. We will be able to enjoy without any sin. Heaven. That is our reward. And just like Edwards preached hundreds of years ago, how we steward God's resources is directly related to how we will be able to experience God's glory forever. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what we're talking about when we sing this song. When I have money that I can spend, am I doing it on a need or on a greed? See, I'm not up here preaching to you that material things are bad. God has blessed us materially so that we can enjoy them. There's a great resource out there by an author named Joe Rigney called The Things of Earth. And if you want to explore this further, I recommend that book to you because there's this enjoyment that God wants uh, us to enjoy things. I'm not advocating going out and selling everything and living an aesthetic life. I'm talking about making good gospel decisions with our money. Do I need this? Do I need a second or a third car? to mode of transportation. Do I need the the ultimate package on my car or can I just be comfortable with the radio and the CD player? See, those are the tensions that we have to think through in the decisions that we make. The sinfulness of man, wealth is dangerous. Wealth is dangerous, isn't it? It's It's got this grip on it that is just evil. Look around the world. Look at the news. See the greed. And greed is diverse. There's this greed that is hoarding, and then there's greed that is just flat-out greedy. Mine, 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 mine. My least favorite TV shows are the ones about hoarders and the ones about the coupon ladies. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but these coupon shows, people were getting really excited about them a few years ago. Reality TV at its worst. And it was these little southern bells that were walking into grocery stores with stacks of coupons and they were walking out with 200 cans of soup and they paid a dollar in total for them. And oh, let's make a TV show about them. And they they would walk the cameras into their pantry and they would show their soup. Hundreds and hundreds of soup and pasta and diapers. They They didn't even have a kid and they had diapers in their pantry. And there's this extreme, mine, 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 and it just grated against me watching this, but I'm the same way. I look at my bank account, and my heart naturally goes, mine, mine, mine. A need presents itself, and I think, man, I really wanted to buy this thing. And there's this war that goes on within us. I've only worked for Harvest for about four and a half years. Um, I had, I've attended for about 10, and five years before, for the five years before I became the director of finance, I was a CFO downtown Toronto. Uh, that's what I wanted to be with my life. And uh, I achieved everything that I thought I wanted to achieve, and it came to be very, very empty. And I found myself year after year, maybe this is familiar to you, well, God, if only I could make this much more next year. I'll give that all to you. It's like bargaining with God. If I could just make 10% more, God, that's all yours. All yours. And sure enough, raise time would come or a promotion would come and I'd get it. And was I faithful? Not at all. I made foolish investments. Foolish use of my time and my talents and my money and just squandered things but oh the grace of god if you had encountered me 5 years ago to think that i would be standing this morning in front of you begging with you to be good stewards of the money that god has blessed you with and the times the time and the talents that he's blessed you with you'd think i was crazy or you'd think you were crazy But God's grace just showers on us. His word exposes sin. It cuts deep into marrow. What hit me was the fact that there are billions of people who are not following Jesus Christ. Some estimates say that there are a billion people today who have no access to the gospel. None. The Bible isn't in their language. Nobody is in their lives to tell them about Jesus. And there's a few different reasons for that. One, it's dangerous to take it to them. So we don't want to go because we're afraid. We don't really trust that God is sovereign over our lives. I've become good friends with some missionaries around the world in the last few years. And one of the things that I've really noticed and identified is they're completely underfunded because the Western world that God has so abundantly blessed, we are clinging like this to our treasure. Clinging like this to our treasure. And the International Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Agency over the last six months has started to recall missionaries from the field because they're underfunded. How are we going to reach the billion people across this world without the gospel if we're not willing to make hard sacrifices at home? That's what got me. You may say, well, Ryan, if they don't hear about the gospel, surely God is gracious, right? No, they're sinful. Without excuse. And we have a responsibility. The king has given us the gospel and we're to take it to them. The neighborhoods that you live in You're not there by accident. You may think you were by accident, or you may think that it was your choice, but God sovereignly directed you there. And you've got neighbors around you who are living lives for this world that will die and face an eternity apart from Jesus Christ. And you have the answer. We've got the Mina in our hands. We've got it. And the king is coming. The king is coming. We're going to stand in front of him and he's going to say, what did you do with my gospel? Did we tell our neighbors or were we too busy comparing cars? We've got this obsession that we need to look like everybody around us. But the reality is our world and our civilization and our country, people are in debt up to their eyeballs trying to live a life that they can't afford. And those of us in the church, we're trying to look like them and drive the same cars as them and have the same homes as them while we make the same amount of money as them. But here's the problem. We're also supposed to give to the local church. One of the biggest excuses that I get for lack of giving is I just don't have enough money. Really. Really. Stop trying to look like everybody else. Stop buying things that you don't need, and you can afford to give to the local church. It's got to be the top of your budget line. This church, Harvest Kelowna, runs on the generosity of its people. Materially, it does. God has elected to use His church and the resource that He has blessed you with as part of the engine that runs this church and this church's ministry will be limited if the people who attend this church do not all band together and give sacrificially it's true it's true how is harvest Kelowna? how is its investment portfolio going is there a lack of funds that are coming in here because there's people that just, no, I got better uses for my money. Got better uses for my money. That one hurts, doesn't it? We can get our minds around our talents and times and maybe joining a small group, or we could even muster up the courage to come and serve on a Sunday morning for setup and teardown, but man, Ryan, please don't talk about my finances. God is a gracious and sovereign God. He supplies all of our needs. All of our needs. He said, the word says that my God shall supply all of your needs. Not all of our greeds, all of our needs. But we like to think that God supplies our greeds too. Are we investing in eternity? Are we? Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. What does your investment portfolio say? As I talk through the key performance indicators, what do they say about you? Again, God's grace is so good. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has saved you. We We don't steward these resources to earn his grace. We don't. He has saved us. He has saved us but we bear fruit as his sons and his daughters. We bear fruit. How are we doing? (sighs) Let me pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for the gospel. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for allowing us to breathe air. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for everything that we own, God. It's yours. You're the king. We're the steward, God. We're the servant. God, would you find us faithful? Find this church faithful. Find me faithful. Find every one of us faithful, God. You are returning, and we cannot wait for that day. God, would you find us faithful?